This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Hey, everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And uh, right now we are giving away a pair of uh, Oasis at Jones Beach tickets. So if you are the 100th caller with the phrase that pays, we're giving them to you. Ed, what's the phrase that pays? Uh, Elephant's foot sandwich with mustard. Jeez. Ed, if we were, if we were, you know, if we were summertime radio state, you know, rock or alternative or easy listening radio station DJs, and we needed to be ready with the phrase that pays, you would not have been ready. I, I would not. I, again, I'm, I wasn't ready for the sort of nineties summertime listening radio intro that that took me by surprise but i'm yeah but it's summer and doesn't it make you sort of feel like uh doesn't it make it doesn't it evoke that kind of uh that kind of radio patois for you it does although it would not be oasis i wanted to go and see no of course not i was just trying to i just didn't have somebody to give away the tickets for right away silver should i give away pearl jam tickets we're giving away pearl jam tickets for the hundredth caller with the phrase that pays right now ed remind him what our number is and of the phrase that pays i'm not giving anyone my number but uh... <laughs> Have you noticed you know, this? This has been a thing for me that that is part of getting older. Is when I was in my first couple of jobs in my mid twenties or whatever, and someone would say, "Oh, do you have a card?" I'd be like, "Yes, take five. See, I have a I have a job and a business card a, that yes, somebody mm-hmm. paid for me to carry around." And now, when people parties and stuff ask, "Oh, do you have a card?" It's like, eh, I do, <laughs> but it's got my number on it and stuff, and I don't really want to give it away and i don't know what you'll use it for and you might show it to other people and does that happen to you see it doesn't and the reason i'll tell you why the reason ed that i don't have that experience is because i work um as a journalist as a as a reporter it's my job to report news in the life of the church and i think that's important and uh and a big part of the way that i do that is by meeting people and talking to them and hearing their stories and meeting other people and hearing their stories and sort of piecing together things or talking with them. So I find, I don't know, it might be different for you, but I find for my job, it's really important that people, you know, that I be able to, that people feel like they're able to reach me and that I feel like I'm able to reach people. So I don't know, that's just kind of, you know, that's just kind of the job that I do. But, you know, everybody's obviously, life and career are, are different, I guess. Or I, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I'm i drawing a distinction between, you know, obviously someone that I want to call me and communicate with me in a discreet fashion, I will, I will give them my number if necessary. Um, but I, I just mean it's social events. Do you Don't not? you find, though, that the people who you really want to call you are not the people who you think you want to call? I mean, to do this well, I'm not trying to give you a hard time here. No, I am trying to give you a hard time here. And, and you should know that I'm giving you a hard time here because I I think, uh, on, I honestly think, and I've said this to many, many people, that of the two of us, you are a better reporter than I am. Um, I think that there are certain things that, uh, certain skills that I bring to the table in our journalistic endeavor um, and, uh, and and I think that there are many things that I am better than you at. Don't worry. But I think that just a, a sort of at the pure level of um, news gathering and reporting, in many ways, I think you're a better reporter than I am. And so far be it from me to question the way in which you do your job, which is to hide your telephone number or contact info from people. I guess that's something I should be doing. Well, one of the things that I often get asked is how do we know the things we know, for example, coming out of Rome and stuff. And it's kind of, um, I, I like to think that, you know, you have to, um, you have to play hard to get a little bit. And, oh. you know, if, if you're, if you're, you know, a, 
a press pool reporter and you're writing your number all over the walls of the Vatican, I mean, you know, anyone can call those people. But, you know, if you want to get in touch with me, you have to really want to. And you better have something when you do. And I think I, 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 I like to think I hold myself aloof a little bit that way. And people respect that. They know that if they if they want to be my source, they got to come with some treasure, you know. That might be. It's that, like Cold that War be. intelligence gathering, JD. Like, how much do you know about? Um, have you read the George Smiley books? Uh, no. You haven't read Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. No. How is that? I don't. I'm. Wow. I'm okay. I'm. I'm poorly read, and now everyone knows it. I am. I'm poorly. Pro- no one would accuse you of being poorly read. I'm just surprised that a a really well constructed, well written. Cold War espionage series doesn't appeal to sounds you. great to me. No, it sounds great to me. It's just, I, it sounds great to me. I just, I only have so many hours in the day, you know, that, that is true. Um, no, but it, it's, you know, you, you, you can, there are, all, there are different ways of cultivating source material. You can either cast a wide net and try and, you know, troll the ocean, or you can, you know, you, I, I like to go spearfishing for my sources, JD, if that makes sense. Uh, it, it does. It, it is. It is a methodology. And again, I think that you're a better reporter than I am. So I far be it from me that, but to okay. question your approach to this gig. We have both always maintained. Uh, you know, it's funny because we've been having a, a fair number of rather heated methodological discussions. Today, I, I was like, about to say you're trying to pay me compliments today. on the podcast because to... you and I were arguing this morning. <laughs> we were. We were. We were. We began having a heated discussion at six in the morning my time, which was too early for that kind of thing. And uh, by um, by about eight thirty, my time, it was rather heated, and we agreed that uh, we would uh, we would give it a few moments. I, I had a coffee with my wife. We came back. It was much better. But uh, but I do think that you are a very very good reporter. And of course, we we have a byline policy by which most of our most important stories you and I write together. And uh, and so we don't uh, we don't spike the football, and um, we do that on purpose because we think the name on the front is more important than the name on the back. But I know the stuff that you acquire and the stuff that I acquire, and and I think you're you're doing pretty 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 damn well well i i aspire to being no more or less than my half of this endeavor (laughs) okay um the uh let's get back to the banter ed we've been talking substantially too much here and there were things bantery things that i wanted to say the usual complaint emails if we don't talk about the frivolous stuff for five well the reason i was part of the reason i was thinking about sort of 90s radio when we started talking you know first of all because it's the summertime and i think about the summertime driving down the shore being at the beach whatever but then second of all you have um, a, a new setup. We have a new produ- we have a producer who we have brought on to the pillar to produce this show and a bunch of other shows, uh, and and some other projects. Who's a part time producer, Kate Oliveira, the executive producer of this show. And Kate has upgraded our microphones dramatically, um, but she has also upgraded your your setup. And so you have this swinging arm thing that really looks very radio ish and is is rather impressive. Um, yeah, I do have one of these boom mic holders now and it is it is impressive to look at it's well this desk is never going to go back to being a dining table again after what i did to clamp it on so there's there's that and it does have the sort of feel of a medieval trebuchet so i'm worried that at any moment you were terrified when it came in the when it came for you in the mail the other day it's the 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 sort of tension that this thing seems to be holding itself in I feel like at any moment it's going to fling my microphone through the window, which we'll see. It does mean I I, I am I, I can sit back in my chair while we talk, which is nice. Yeah. Normally I'm hunched over, so I, I have that going for me. Well, I'm glad to hear. Okay. Here's what I want to talk about today, Ed. And uh, and um, uh, what I want to talk about today, it's summertime, right? And I do feel like, you know, we can, we, we don't have to be as sort of slavishly adherent to a, 
uh, a show schedule as we ordinarily are on this program. Um, and, uh, and so I feel like we can, we can just sort of broaden the conversation a little bit, widen the conversation, talk about many other things. And what I want to talk about, Ed, um, is, uh, is grace. Um, I, I, cause I think, I, we're going to talk about Encanto again. Cause I, I feel like we did that conversation. No, I don't want to talk about Encanto. I want to talk about something Christian. And, um, and, uh, I, but I do think, you know, our listeners hear us talk about the news and, um, and that's good and important and things that are happening in the life of the church and things that are happening not in the life of the church. And I'm sure we'll get to all of that, um, Edward, but first, uh, I just want to know, man, cause I think our listeners want to know, like, where's grace really operative in your, in your life right now? Immediately before meals, mostly. <laughs> this is why probably gets all excited for like the when you guys get invited to like the couples sharing group and you know you have your wine and cheese and you sit down in somebody's living room and you start sort of talking about the spiritual life and you just crack wise and i bet talks to you about it in the car ride home um that's possible i i think it's also fair to say that um my wife is tends to be a little socially introverted uh as as do i so um, the sort of events of which you are describing are not things that we have, have been invited to, although I probably would try and spoil the occasion with awkward humor if we were invited. That's true. Uh, but where is, I don't know. I mean, I, I was deflecting with humor, JD, because you, you've done it again. You sometimes will spontaneously spring on me, um, questions that require deep personal reflection to come up with a coherent answer. And I wasn't ready. Well, I presume that you are regularly reflecting in your sort of daily examine about where grace has been operative and where you. Yes. But in a self recriminating way, lamenting its absence and my deafness to it rather than. um, (laughs) Well, that's see, I would want to encourage you. I would want to encourage you to better document the, uh, the manifested effects of grace in your life, because you'll better, you'll sort of be better inculcate the virtue of gratitude and and piety. And and you'll better be, be, be disposed to hearing the Holy spirit. Being a parent is has been a weird experience for me, spiritually. Um, yeah, how so? Well, I mean, I found myself. This happened. This happened yesterday, actually. I was so just to bring people up to speed in case they haven't been with us this long. You guys had the baby when it, it, you had your first baby. Um, when, approximately seven to nine months ago. Yeah, right. Roughly seven to nine months ago. So the the baby is in the stage that one might is a seven to nine month year old an infant a. An early toddler. I don't know very much about human development. Uh, well, I know even less. I it it it, it is still effectively a baby. You it, it it lacks the ability to move independently. Okay, um, baby is sufficient. Oh, so it doesn't does it scoot across the floor or anything like that? No, but she's an only child to reasonably older parents, so she's pretty spoiled. I, I think she, she probably she has no could, need to do anything. Yeah, spirit. she could probably have learned to crawl by now if she'd ever looked at something that wasn't immediately brought to her. Mm. Um, but that's never happened, so we may never know. But no, being a parent has been an interesting spiritual experience for me because, um, and it's, I suppose the, I don't know if this pertains to grace particularly, other than the fact that my marriage and the, the miracle of my child is is certainly all grace. Um, but what I would say is, I found myself holding the child for ten minutes in between things that we were doing for work, and. I found myself just being incredibly content with the fact that I was there with my child. And um, it was a strange feeling for me. Contentment? Not just contentment, but Ah. contentment entirely rooted in the moment. It wasn't contentment that was linked in any way to the achievement of a goal or the completion of a task or the building towards a particular project or... um, 
you know, there was there was no. It was entirely of the moment, and I that is not a feeling that I'm familiar with. So that was interesting, and I think um, I I understand uh, why it is so important the notion of fatherhood in in the language of the scriptures and in uh, in the language which God chooses to reveal Himself to us, because the the gratuitous nature of the divine love is is something I've often struggled to not to understand intellectually but to to grasp at an emotional or spiritual level and the idea that you can be completely happy just in the contemplation of the happiness of your child it makes sense as a as an as an analogy for what God wants for me in my in terms of my conversion and my my being in a relationship with him and I, I don't know. This is this is coming out um, inexactly, but you know, you asked me to speak off the hoof, so this is this is the closest I can come to a coherent answer without further reflection. No, I think that's a very beautiful answer. And and while you were speaking, I was, yeah, fatherhood has been for me a um, a really sort of transformative element of my of my interior life and and uh, my my relationship with the Lord and in many many ways. But while you were speaking, I was thinking about one of them, which is that um, one of the sort of graces of parenthood is um i was struck i suppose when you you said that you were sort of um content uh or or fa- yeah found some contentment contemplating the happiness of your child because it's the sort of thing that one says when one um is holding uh, a very cute very beautiful sleeping baby um it is not the sort of thing that one says when one is sort of being assaulted or pummeled by uh, a 10 year old or um or or something like that and so it's sort of like one of the cool things I think about um, parenthood is the way in which we have this this time to be completely um, to, to to sort of fall completely in love with this child, to become completely um, and very deeply sort of connected to this child and their welfare and their well being. This period of dependency, uh, such that that sense of obligation, uh, responsibility, and like joyful, grateful sense of obligation and responsibility is sort of there, and it is the rootedness when. Um, the uh, when the thing is becomes far less sort of cute, and uh, and there's a real kind of grace to that time of like being um, sort of formed in that bond that uh, that is I think analogous an- analogous in many ways to um, to the sort of bond of filial piety um, that to which we ought to be uh, to, to which we can be formed um, in in relation to the father. I'm sure you're right, although instinctively I I would go the other way and say no, that's not spiritual. That's just Darwinian. No, the kids I think that's probably right. me over I mean, so that I uh, won't drown it in the bath when it gets I'm older. I'm trying to. Th- uh, yes, I perhaps I'm spiritualizing something very natural, but I suppose that <laughs> makes sense because um, grace perfects nature and these sorts of things. Um, and so there is probably yes, there's doubtlessly something evolutionary there, but it can transcend that uh, in a certain way. And um, sure, but there's a reason the kid smiles the hardest and makes the cutest noises after she's done something utterly, utterly revolting that requires me to clean it up. <laughs> That's just yes. a survival mechanism, right? That's exactly that's exactly right. She's a she's a naughty naughty child, and uh, and 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 you have to deal with the effects. Uh, of that. Can I ask I'm a sure. parenting question? Uh, the last time you did this, we had to talk about Encanto. I, this will not in any way. Go By the way, did that. you see in the newsletter last week? I sent you a little video called "We Don't Talk About Pluto." Did yeah, you I did. That? Yeah. Okay. Good. Glad here. Yeah, I noticed that the sideswipe misrepresenting my views on. In Disney if you listen to the show but you don't know what we're talking about, Ed and I uh, run a news organization called 
the uh, the pillar. Uh, you can read it at pillarcatholic.com, but you can also subscribe to a uh, biweekly news, biweekly or semi-weekly newsletter. I don't know. It comes to your inbox twice a week in which we will have uh, summaries of the news in the life of the church, but also uh, reflections on all things, um, well, sort of <laughs> any smattering of things which Ed and I are thinking about at the particular moment in which we must publish our newsletters. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, no, what I was going to ask is that we're constantly being cautioned that we, um, we, and by we I mean me, uh, must swear less often now that we have children. Oh, in front no. of the children. I've, I, I have more or less said that no profanity will more or less be tolerated from the child from any age, provided she's doing it in the appropriate accent. If she, well, if there are she words sounds... that British people say that are absolutely and completely intolerable. I mean, yes. the the sing the most British people drop the single most intolerable word in the English language as a modifier, a gerund, a gerundive, or in any other way. And I'm not sure that in this American puritanical culture, um, a lovely sort of posh West End accent is going to going to forgive that. Uh, no, you will, there there will have to be. You you know the word to which I refer. I do, yes, but no, we will have to we'll have to limit ourselves to those words which are socially acceptable among adults in this country. I suppose that is a very good idea. Uh, and the but, most difficult part for you about that has been that you have a penchant for using a phrase which seems to be perfectly acceptable among believers in the United Kingdom, and but which is not acceptable among believers here in the United States. Which frequently, when you say it, may, gives me a bit of interior cringe, and you get notes about it, but you mean nothing by it at all. Which is that you say I can't even say it. Um, <laughs> Such a Puritan on the show. Oh my, God! When you wish to express exasperation or disbelief or something yes, like I, that, I like oh it that you seem to think this is an American UK distinction. When in fact, it's perfectly common to say this same expression in the United Kingdom, in Ireland, in France, in Germany. Well, I'm not. In I'm not especially Italy, concerned with what the French Spain. consider blasphemy. I, my point is the rest of the world. It is only in the United States where Catholicism is basically a sacramentalized offshoot of Puritanism <laughs> that this is viewed as blasphemy because it is not blasphemy. God's name is not God. To take the name of the Lord, the Lord has several to proper names. You were about to say to take the name of the Lord in vain is no problem at all. No, no to the take Lord the name of the Lord in vain, you have to actually name the Lord. I do not invoke the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in vain, or as a blasphemy, and that would that would in fact be us. And I absolutely never pronounce tetragrammaton under any circumstances. No, whatsoever. good, good. That's well, you shouldn't, unless unless like you're transported back to the nineties and then you're saying it every week. But this sort of Pharisaical weekend. laws around the laws around the law, where you know you can't sort of in any way indicate towards the divine without somehow committing blasphemy, I think, is is not is a nonsensical interpretation. In defense of Phariseeism, there is a certain way in which setting fence posts around the most important moral laws has some value. And, uh, and, and you know, um, being cautious about sort of um, an, evoca- an exasperated evocation of the divine name in any way is not a bad thing. No, it's well. not. But that's, that, that is different than what you do, which is to claim it is itself blasphemy. And for a man who has nearly come to blows with me on this very show about particularities of... <laughs> using words carefully and not calling heresy something which is not technically oh, heresy. Yeah. But I, and to I, then I turn around and say, be- oh, no, blasphemy is just anything that gives me the, the theological willies when I hear I someone say I can't precisely it. about moral theology. I mean, I have... Well, uh, no one can think precisely about moral theology. It's not a real thing. It's just, you know, <laughs> moral theology is just people with moral PhDs theology, talking about no, their feelings. I just, moral theology is one of the most concrete and objective realms of theology for me. Moral theology is not sort of speculative 
systematics or something like that in which one can just sort of conjecture what one wills. Um, moral theology, I think, because of its applicability to um, real and concrete situations, gets, is, is more rooted in reality than the theological disciplines which most exasperate you, as is scriptural exegesis and these kinds of things. You get exasperated by sort of just like theologians inventing like sort of a whole jargon whole new sort of jargons and systems, you know, whole cloth. Well, also in their refusal to answer straight questions about particular subjects. Like, do you remember we had, I can't remember if this was at the end of last week or um, the week before, but we were doing a little explainer on relics. We were doing a little, we did a little, we did a little explainer on relics, just sort of, I was wondering, you know, about this notion because we, we heard, I mean, this very unfortunate thing that a relic of the true cross was stolen from um, the second in two weeks. Yeah, stolen. was stolen from what the cathedral in um, the Co Cathedral in Galveston, in Galveston Houston. Houston. Which one? Where? What was it in Galveston or Houston? I believe it was in Houston, but I oh, I was going to say Galveston. But the uh, a, a relic of the True Cross was stolen from either Galveston or Houston um, from the Co Cathedral, and it was the second in two weeks because one had been stolen from like Florida or something. A Florida like that. parish, along with a bunch of other relics. Yeah, and so we just got to talking about relics, and I was sort of saying, Ed, why don't you just sort of talk to somebody about? A relic of the true cross and this sort of like notion that's always said that if you added up all the relics of the true cross, you could build a house and um, and these kinds of things. And then we can use that as a sort of segue into talking about sort of the devotional spirituality of relics and the history of them and the place of the church and, you know, sort of sacramentals and the places of the spiritual life and these kinds of things. So there was a lot of there were a lot of things that we could probe, but you did not find it as easy as we had imagined to sort of get an explainer down on paper. Well, no, and there's a reason for that. I mean, first of all, the canard that if you add up all the uh, authenticated or um, recognized fragments of the true cross in the church. You, you could build a house. I mean, you wouldn't get a cross beam of a cross. Um, but this this uh, this pun, this joke, this witticism, I think comes from Calvin. And in fact, just further oh, goes really? to Don't my say. point about you oh, having internalized really Protestant no, purity. No, 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 because I didn't know that it was true or not true, but that it comes from Calvin, that would, I w- that would have been great in the piece. I hope... I, I hope that when the relic is returned, we can write another one and we can give some of the history of this stuff. Perhaps. But anyway, my frustration with that particular piece was I got in touch with six, I think, theologians of various stripes and disciplines over the course of the day and said, hey, can you be a wise talking head for something that we're writing that would be very useful to talk to a, a theologian about? Sure. I mean, this is after I tried two canon lawyers, both of whom, because, you know, you want to actually an exact answer from someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, and a, both I'm the a pretty canon good canonist, said, and I'm a pretty good canonist, and relics are not really in our wheelhouse. Well, and both the canonists said, no, I mean, some of these questions I can, you know, about trafficking in relics, and, you know, how do you, chain of custody. The approval and process, and these kind of things, I know about that, sure. Yeah, they yeah. said, I can talk about that. this other stuff you're asking about, you, you do actually need to talk to a theologian. So I called, and emailed, and whatever, and I got in touch with five or six. And every single one said, oh, yeah, I can absolutely talk to you. What, what would you like to know? I said, sure. Can you tell me about the business of when we chop up a saint's body and circulate their body parts in different parts of the world and how that relates to the dignity of Christian burial and the resurrection of the body? Uh, no, uh, that's not uh, that's not actually my uh, specialty. You uh, you should you uh, maybe you want to talk to a systematician or a moral theologian or any other kind of theologian than the one I was talking to at the moment. They're all <laughs> cowards, J.D., Oh, boy. You try and pin these guys down on a particular question of church doctrine, and they're like, oh, uh, what? You want to talk about a specific thing? Oh, no, thank you. Uh, I would just like to say, theologian listeners and and subscribers to the Pillar Podcast and PillarCatholic.com, that I don't think that you're cowards. I think what it probably is is those... When they wanted to call you back, they didn't have your number because you don't make that available, <laughs> even to the people you're trying to interview about serious things. That's that's my guess. You know, again, you you do reporter the way you do it, and you're very very good. But I, I wonder if maybe they just didn't have your number. That could also be true. 
But you did find somebody who was really interesting. We and did. you we had found a, a priest who is the rector of um, Father Nick Vaskoff, right? Yeah, uh, in in the, on the north side of Pittsburgh, and this his uh, church building. It's not a parish. Um, he has care of like a bunch of shrines in the in the city of Pittsburgh. I think yeah, it's his sort and, of pastoral ministry. And he's got more than two hundred some relics. It's the largest collection of relics outside of the Vatican anywhere in the world. Wow. And mercifully, he rode to our rescue and was prepared to talk about all of these things. Cool. Well, that's great. Well, great stuff. Okay, now why why were we talking about that? I have absolutely no idea. Oh, right, because you, I was saying that you shouldn't say, oh, my G-O-D. Oh, right, And you yeah. were saying that you should, but before that, you're, we wanted to talk about swearing a little bit. And no, we, you know, we swear in front of our kids. I guess that's the bottom line is we swear in front of our kids, and they seem... Your children are lovely. I've met them on several occasions. We, we don't, we don't, uh, we, we, we don't swear in front of other people's kids, I suppose. Like, if, if, we, we're, we're a safe place if your children want to come over for a play date. We're not going to be a bad influence. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to let them. Yeah, we're you know, definitely I was using the this example a couple weeks ago. We're not going to let them watch a bad movie. We're not going to swear in front of them. We do. We're a very, very good influence. I, I just. I feel like my wife would want me to assure you of that. But yeah, I think we. Are we, not, had a, we had a. We had a friend over last weekend for drinks one evening, and we we're all sitting in the backyard and having a lovely conversation. And I, I thought we passed the evening very pleasantly. And then um, after they had left, my wife took me to task. And said, you, you can't swear like that in front of people it it makes them really uncomfortable i said i did you say oh my god because it does make people really uncomfortable no i well i have no idea what i said over the course of an entire evening or did you say the worst word gallon of pims but um no i again jd i i have been in this country long enough that i'm able to conform my even my profanity i've managed to at least limit to the bandwidth which is acceptable right i'm very glad to hear that sort of normal adult because that word is, I think, forbidden I never by divine used natural that. law. Stop it. I never used that word. Okay, good. Even over there, I would not. I thought that was a bit much. But that's not the point. Um, the, the point was, I, I thought this was, you know, even for apparently, even it's not about, you know, do you swear in front of other people's kids? Apparently, I, I get in trouble with my wife for swearing in front of other adults who I would have thought were okay with this sort of thing. And then I remember the friend we had over, the first time I'd met them was actually in a bar at the USTCB meeting. And I thought, well... If that was first acquaintance, then they they know what I sound like, so everybody can just get over themselves. Oh, this was this was. I know what you're talking about because I know the evening that you're talking about because we tend to tell each other a lot a lot of things. And then um, th- one night last week, you were like, uh, "I I have to go. Uh, I'm having a guest over tonight." And um, I felt very. It was very strange. Like it seemed clear to me that I oughtn't ask who there was. Some, there was just something about the way that you said you were having a guest over. That made me feel like I, I oughtn't ask who, and I haven't, and I had forgotten about it. But I remember for a little while wondering uh, about your mystery guest, largely because you were far more sort of guarded about it with me than we usually are about anything. I don't know that that was the case. I, this I was a, a mitered. This was a mitered guest. Oh uh, no 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 no! That was a different occasion entirely. Okay. This was okay. a purely social engagement. I see. I see. Okay. Well, there you have it. Oh, I didn't realize you were wondering who that was. You should have no, just I, said. I would have told you. I, I, I didn't, it didn't, it didn't, there was something about your demeanor and disposition that made me feel like I shouldn't. I, I was probably just six drinks deep, that's all. No, no, okay, well, maybe. Anyway, we have, Ed, we have serious things we have to talk about. It is the summer, and we're talking a little bit more, you know, taking the show a little bit more casually, and I'm sure that there are people who are going to be displeased with that, but it's the summer, and um, and that is what it is. But we do have some serious things that I want to talk about and I know you want to talk about too. And so, um, believe it or not, Ed, this is probably going to surprise you, but we uh, will discuss those things, um, those very serious and important things, 
uh, in just a minute after this word from our sponsor. Ed, uh, you probably know this already, uh, but listeners, you may not. Um, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas. It's the Catholic University, my friends, for independent thinkers. And some of you may know that the University of Dallas has recently launched a free video series called The Quest, which you can watch at a link in the show notes or udallas.edu slash pillar. The University of Dallas, first, let me say, a place with many fine theologians who are to be commended. Um, this product, The Quest, this free video series, is a five-episode documentary series about discovering your purpose and living it with coraggio, with courage. Begin your quest at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. I didn't call anyone from the University of Dallas when I was making those phone you calls. You didn't Jan- call anyone from the University I of Dallas. I didn't have well, their number. Saying. But um, I, I just want to now that we're no, but now that we're now that you've raised, I would just say that this everything I said in my theologian rant does not apply to any of the kind folks at the University of Dallas because not one of them didn't take a call or couldn't provide a straight answer. So I if can't. If you want to find out them what, for that, what the folks at the University of Dallas have to say, go to udallas.edu/pillar for the quest, a five-episode documentary series about discovering your purpose and living it with courage. And we're back. To the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. The first half of this show, we were just shooting the breeze because, guys, it's the summertime. But here's what I want to talk about, Ed. The U.S. bishops are on retreat this week. Um, some bishops may well be may well listen to this show as they travel to their retreat. Um, the U.S. bishops are on retreat this week, and I don't know what the themes of the retreat are. I think the themes of the retreat center around unity. I think the bishops were asked to have a retreat about unity because they had so much division and these kind of things. But I really hope that for a number of bishops, the focus of that retreat is on is on renewal, is on what a spiritual um, renewal movement uh, means, even for the formation of people who want to live the faith. You know, people like 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 our listeners. Do we know who's preaching the retreat? Yeah, Archbishop Fisher, the Archbishop of um, of uh, of Sydney, is preaching the retreat. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I like him. Isn't he a Dominican? He is a Dominican. Well then. Dominican's going to preach, man. All right. Well, the bishops are on retreat, and they will be, uh, I hope, talking about renewal, um, uh, because I really and truly think that that's the only thing worth talking about. Um, But that doesn't mean it's the only thing we're going to talk about, or the only thing worth, uh, the only big picture from which to talk. But it doesn't mean it's the only thing that we're going to talk about, because there are other things that pertain to the renewal and mission of the Church that are happening in the news right now. And one of them is that the Vatican finance trial really is in full swing. Full swing. Would you say full swing? Uh, it, it's going great guns. I, I mean, mean, we're into it, right? Given that seasoned Vatican um, commentators uh, confidently predicted that by the end of this month, we would not even have had a first uh, substantive hearing in this trial. Uh, I, I'd say we're, we've had... <laughs> you teasing me. I am. I'm, I'm, gently, I'm gently ribbing you. There you have it. Um, we've had uh, a lot of uh, substantive evidentiary hearings. And we continued. I mean, this week we had uh, your friend and mine, uh, Raffaele Mincioni. The businessman who owned the London property and was also a Vatican investment manager and sold off his share of the London property to the Holy See uh, while also being their investment manager and the guy who got them sort of into the building investment in the first place. Yes. I mean, he was there for two days, which was great. It was great of him to show up. I'll be honest. I, I wondered whether he would. I, I, he was I think, there at the trial for two days yeah, giving he evidence? Gave, he was answering questions for... I think upwards of 10 hours across the two days. Like it was, he was, uh, he was, he gave his time freely. I'm, I say I was surprised that he turned up. I, 
I kind of was. I thought it was a 50-50 shot whether we'd see him in court. But at the end of last year, his lawsuit against the Holy See, specifically the Secretary of State in the um, High Court of England and Wales, was basically kicked into the grass and um, suspended indefinitely by a judge who basically said, look, your beef is with the Vatican prosecutors and you can't you can't sue your way in a UK court out of a Vatican courtroom. When when the dust all settles there, if you feel you still have a cause of action against them, then come back and we'll you know we'll revisit your lawsuit. So I think he's participating actively now because he's realized he has he will not get a hearing in another legal forum until this is concluded. Um, but it was interesting to hear him uh, hear him speak. It was interesting to hear his account of how he first became enmeshed with the Secretary of State. Uh, much of what he said was known. Um, and will have been known to people who've been reading our coverage of the Vatican finances for a number of years, although it was news to other people listening for the first time. Um, he has he slightly changed his presentation of how he knows Gianluigi Torzi or how he knew Gianluigi Torzi, the, the fellow who was the Vatican's middleman for negotiating the acquisition of the London building from Mincioni. Uh, I remember when we first started reporting this uh, oh so many years ago, and it was suggested that these two gentlemen might have um, uh, some uh, some familiar some some deep and familiar business working relationship. Uh, Mr. Mincioni, as I recall, gave we're just two Italians living in London. Two Italians living in London. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah, uh-huh. our offices were you know off the same square and right you know, in the in, same set of buildings in yeah. Mayfair, mm-hmm. but you know we weren't. You know, we didn't know each other. I wouldn't say we knew each other. Now he said, "Well, I mean, yes, I have some some history some together, business dealings of well, in business dealings that we spent several years laying out of right. Mincioni sinking tens of millions of Vatican funds into products marketed by Torzi, and then Torzi turning around with his other companies and lending Mincioni tens of millions of euros to try and finance his failed takeover of an Italian bank." Uh, oh, oh, that? Yeah, I, I guess you could say we 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 knew one another. I mean, to the extent, do you really know who lent you your last thirty million? I don't know. I mean, who can keep track? Who who really ever knows? Whoever really knows anyone in Barclay Square, JD? We're all Indeed. enigmas around there. Um, so that was interesting to see how all of that played out. I mean, uh, he did say some things which I frankly have a lot great deal of sympathy with him over, and he did. Uh, point some useful fingers back at the Secretary of State, and I, I, I accept him would uh, would say his narrative makes sense, which is as he put it, you know, well if the Vatican feels they got a raw deal in the building, they've got no one but themselves to blame, um, because they pulled out of the deal early. That when they signed their initial investment agreement with Mincioni and gave him two hundred million of their money, it was for a five year plus two lockup agreement. Like you don't get, you know, the the whole premise of these, um investment funds is that you put your money in and the Vatican's actually had lawsuits in Malta with the IOR over doing the same thing, trying to pull its money out early of these schemes um, or not paying up on the installation rate that they said they were going to. Um, You know, you sign these deals and say, you've got X number of years to manage this money and we can't take the money out in the interim because you obviously plan your investment strategy around a time period and you can't plan an investment strategy for the medium or long term if your investors can just yank the money out at any moment. Right, exactly. Yeah. So the Holy See decided to pull its money out in a tearing hurry yeah. um, in the second half of 2018, coincidentally right when Cardinal Betchew left to become Cardinal Betchew and prefect of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, and a new substitute to that would be Archbishop Edgar Pinapara arrived. Um, so the decision was made then that they were going to get all their money out 
from Incioni and you know they paid eye-watering penalties as a result yeah. and they were lucky yeah that's and Mincioni right, basically said this and i agree with them they were lucky they got as much as the tangible asset of the building yeah um out of the deal because frankly they had no right to any of their money out i mean the, you know they made a they made a bad deal to begin with and they made a worse deal to get out but those were the deals they made so i i sympathize with him on that um and another argument he made in court was that um Basically, if the if the Vatican took a bath on the resale value of the property, which by all accounts it did, um, I think the accepted figure for how much they lost on the building was a hundred million euros. Although I've heard that go as high as two hundred million in some people's estimates, but they lost a lot of money uh, on yeah. on this building deal. And his response was, "Well, again, that's their fault because." You know, when I was managing it, we had planning permission with the local borough council. We were going to convert right. it from, you know, one sort of usage to another. You know, we and then they took control of the building. They let the planning permission lapse. They couldn't do anything with the property that, you know, the, all of this hurts the resale. And he's right. I mean, what he at least I didn't hear him mention was that the planning permission for 60 Sloan Avenue was actually dependent on the simultaneous development of another property, because if you build residential property in some parts of London, you have to do certain percentage has to be low income to low account income, for high income. income and all this stuff. Um, he didn't mention that, you know, the planning permission on the building when the Vatican acquired, it was dependent on the develop sub, of the simultaneous development of a second property. Also, which was the property, the parish that we talked about a long, a long, long time ago, you and I covered a par- How did that parish figure into this? I had kind of forgotten about that until right now. Oh, okay. Well, so how it figured out back in the day was when um, they were kicking the tires on this, building development you know before they were yanking all their money out to get a hold of it when they were just so like when would that have been that's 20 between 2014 20 2016 let's say give or take okay um i could look it up because i i talked to the priest involved in all this um but anyway let's say 2016 for a round number basically the idea was they were going to develop this building and they needed to develop some residential spaces to go along with it to get the planning permission they need. And they tried a different number of ways to get, this is Mincioni's um, management company, tried a bunch of different options with the local borough council to get approval, planning approval to develop this building. And they said, well, what if we just give you a bunch of cash and you can, you know, do whatever you like with it and you give us pass. They said, no. They said, all right, well, what if we, and they actually got someone from the Vatican over. I never got the name of the Monsignor, although I have, I am 99.9% certain of who it was, um, came over and walked around with the the head of finances for the Diocese of Westminster and a guy from Mincioni's company and like looked at church properties in the borough, uh, including the, the rectory and hall of a parish. And basically they said, well, yeah, we... We could roll this into the deal and you could bulldoze this and build a block of flats here. And, you know, we'll just make the priest live in an apartment on you know on one of the floors. And we talked to the priest who was sort of standing there as they were chopping up his parish in front of him. Going, what? What? You're going to do what? And that right. in the end fell through because it was basically unworkable because the parish property was too far away from the building. It, you know, yeah. it wouldn't have fallen within the catchment area we needed to do the simultaneous development. Anyway, the plan they eventually settled on was there was a second property that Mincioni owned. And they said, well, you develop these two simultaneously and there's the right balance between the two. That's fine. We'll give you a sort of package planning permission for the two buildings. Um, And obviously that lapsed. So Mincioni did point out that they let the planning permission lapse. He didn't make a big deal of the fact that, well, you couldn't actually develop the building without me once I'd sold it to you because you needed my second building to go ahead. Um, So there's that. I mean, again, whose fault is it that they decided to pull the building 
prematurely in the deal. Again, that that was the Vatican's decision. There's you know it's nobody's fault, but theirs there. So I found all of that very very interesting. Um, what's more interesting is what happens next month, um, because next month is when the prosecution start calling witnesses, mm-hmm. and I have no idea who they're going to call. And yeah. I am this is this is the this is the moment I've been waiting for. Is like this is impress me. So far, we've been hearing from, you know, the indicted accused. But now, now impress me with your witness list because I, I want to know who they're going to call. Who are mm-hmm. they going to, you know, are they going to call Liberal Malonian? Are they going to call Cardinal Pell? Are they going to call staffers from the Secretariat for the Economy or former staffers from the Secretariat of the Economy? Are they going to call officials from the Vatican Bank? Are they, the IOR? Are they, you know, who, who are they going to get involved? Who are they going to get in here? Are they going to bring in guys... Um, who can actually flesh out the network of companies? Because they they threw this week. There were all sorts of names being thrown around, but you know, people who kind of knew each other, whatever. You know, Mincione kind of knew Torzi, and Torzi kind of knew this Luciano Capaldo guy, and they all kind of had an interest in this. But it's like, no, not kind of anything. There was like a really easily mappable, not easily mappable, but um, a mappable in a clear and determined way. Of the corporate network of, you know, who owned shares of whose company and whose company was sort of a a shell holding corporation for this one. And like all of these guys are tied together in a in a demonstrable network. I want them to call somebody who can actually flesh that out and say, okay, enough of this crap about, you know, we kind of knew each other. Here's actually how much money each one of these guys owed each other and Mm -hmm. when they owed it. Like this is the part where the prosecution needs to start impressing people with, uh, well, here are the actual facts. Mm-hmm. We've heard the kind of gloss of, well, this is where the, you know, this is how I felt about it. And, you know, well, whatever. It's like, no, but here are the hard facts. Here's some evidence. That's what I can't wait for. And, I mean, it's possible they're going to trip over their own shoes and, you know, screw yeah. it all up. Um, and if they do, I'll be immensely it frustrated. I mean, given the sort of, tr- given the sort of track, r- this, the number of justices who have raised the question about their ability to make their own case, it would not be completely surprising. It would not be totally surprising. Um but they did file a 200-plus page indictment to begin with, and there is some pretty interesting stuff in there if they choose to actually use the material that they've already gathered. Um, and if, they're, if, they, if they need help um, with ideas of questions that might be usefully asked and answered in court, I have some. Um, I, I've been writing them down for a number of years now, and I've been citing corporate filings and documents to back it up. So, you know, go nuts, guys. If you, if you just don't know what to say... When your turn comes, I have some ideas for you. Indeed. So we'll see. I, I'm looking forward to sort of the start of the second half of all of this. And and I think we remain on course for a, a, a resolution of this trial somewhere between a year and 18 months from now. I think if you figure six more months of uh, witness testimony one way or another, another bunch of, you know, say another two months of procedural wranglings four months odd for you know the judges to take uh, a recess to consider yeah I, I think we're still on more or less target i know everyone else is sick of hearing about this but i no 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 i don't i'm think on so the edge all. of my seat i know you are and i know you are and i am glad that you are what else is coming up in the news ed that you want to talk about coming up in the news i well, have what no else idea is in the news well, that you, you saw the about. well i mean the the lieutenant to the grand master of the order of Malta died. Lieutenant to the grand master of the order of Malta died, and you have been trying to figure out all week in your spare time who takes over the. So now, who's in charge is like the the grand the, commander. The grand commander of the order of Malta is in charge right now, but he's eighty-two, and you have been um, c- 
concerned, although 82 is not, you know, 82 is probably the new 72 um, in a certain way, but you have been concerned about his health and been wondering. Um, so basically the number three is in charge because the number two had been in charge for basically two years because they hadn't had an election for a new number one. Because, because he kind died of, in the middle of his term in 2020. And they're in the middle of a sort of revision of the rules of everything right now. So they didn't elect a new guy. But you have been wondering, Ed, about um, what happens if the number three, who is now the number one, dies. Yeah, I, I have been. I mean, it's the. Uh, you're right. 82 is not what it used to be. And there's no reason why an 82-year-old can't continue in office for many years in perfect health. And I certainly hope he does. Um, but it's also true that the attrition rate at the leadership of the Order of Malta has been pretty grim over the last three years or so. So I, I have been trying to figure out, well, what happens if you don't have a grandmaster, or lieutenant to the grandmaster, or a grand commander? Um, because you've basically exhausted at that point the the offices that involve the fras, involve the professed first class of knights by by nature and requirement and all the other requirements to exercise supreme leadership in the order. Um, the nearest I can get to, I think, in my reading of the current constitutional charter is the Grand Chancellor, who is Albrecht von Buselager and is not eligible because he's a knight of the second class, um, not the first, convenes the Sovereign Council, or what remains of it at this point, uh, and they have to elect someone as a sort of stopgap matter of urgency. But I, I, part of me kind of wonders at this point if this isn't actually going to resolve the fundamental constitutional crisis that's been brewing for the Order of Malta by the sort of inexorable passage of time and people because I mean for anyone who's been following our coverage of this they know that you know there was this gridlock for years after the abdication of the Grand Master Matthew Festing in 2017 and that was supposed to lead to a constitutional reforming process that basically stalled internally then Pope Francis appointed uh, a special cardinal delegate to help oversee the reform um, that started off being Cardinal Betchew and uh, we don't need to talk about um, what people have said about his time in that function, but uh, he was eventually replaced in 2020 at the time of his resignation of the rights and privileges of a cardinal uh, with Cardinal Silvano Tomasi, who we interviewed earlier this year. Uh, but what it boils down to is there has been the knights themselves are divided over their constitutional future. And the Vatican definitely appears, or at least the Vatican's commission appointed by Pope Francis appears to have a side in all of this. But that side, while it might have quite a bit of support amongst the membership in some uh, some of the order's associations, isn't particularly well represented in the Grand Magistrate in Rome. And so you have this situation where the order's leadership and the Vatican's commission have not seen eye to eye, sometimes quite publicly so, over the constitutional future of the order. Cardinal Tomasi technically has all these powers granted to him by the Pope to convene a chapter general to, you know, pass a new constitution, all this stuff. But this question has always been, well, if the Vatican does that, then the order is no longer sovereign, whatever its law may say. And that creates a whole big international law problem. But, you know, I, I'm now wondering if the running out of leadership at the top of the order of Malta isn't going to create basically a circumstance in which the Vatican can legitimately step in and it not look like an invasion of sovereignty, but look, you know, in, in a way that is a little bit more coherent, um, that, you know, such as the Holy See acting as a sort of guarantor of the Order of Malta and assuming a sort of caretaker function in a in an internal crisis of leadership. I, I wonder if we couldn't, 
you know, I, I basically wonder if Pope Francis is now going to rule personally over the, what the future constitution is going to look like. But again, the, the legal mechanism by which it will be adopted is becoming less and less clear to me because they're running out of people who can legally call and summon a chapter general at this point. And I just wonder where that's going to go. It's, it's fascinating to me. Well, let's talk about something closer to home. It's fascinating to me, too, and to a lot of people. We have been hearing from a lot of people who are in or around the Order of Malta who are watching this because I think you might be the only person uh, – I think that it's possible that you and the Grand Commander of the Order of Malta are the only person asking who the, who number four is. Um, uh, so a lot of people who have been wondering that you – know, you're the only two people who are trying to figure it out, I suppose. But a lot of people who have been paying attention to the Order of Malta are themselves – um, keen to uh, to uh, uh, hear from hear from you about that, so keep it up. But let's talk about something a little bit closer to home for a few minutes because it's another question of what I view as principally a story about a question of good governance and good processes. And here's what I mean: we ran a story yesterday about um, six uh, novices in a, uh, who were in a novitiate at a re- in a religious congregation in California. They were in the novitiate of the Canons Regular of the Immaculate Conception, a small religious community with um, houses. A house in California, or two houses in California, and then houses in South America and, and in Europe. And uh, and they alleged that their novice master um, encouraged or even sort of made them feel pressured to sort of engage in excessive drunkenness in the house, that he drank a lot and encouraged them to do the same, that he um, uh, sort of was pitting them against each other or um, threatening to kick them out or, you know, holding things over them in a way that felt very manipulative to them, and that on a number of occasions, a number of them alleged that he engaged in inappropriate kinds of touching that could at the very least, I think, be described as sexual harassment um, uh, or some kind of sexual misconduct. But the um, the men um, sort of had a kind of a blow up with their novice master last summer, um, actually a year ago today, June 9th, 2021, they wrote a letter to the superior of their community in Rome and uh, and asked that their novice master be removed, that they get a new novice master, and raised all these complaints about drunkenness, about what they called manipulation, about what they called inappropriate touching um, in in various parts on various parts of their body and in various ways. Um, and uh, um, there was a this kind of blow up where they had this big sort of dramatic. Uh, they they all t- say that there was this big dramatic moment where their novice master, um, who was angry with them and had been drinking, kind of cussed them out in front of the ta- in front of the blessed sacrament. After Compline, and uh, and then there was a meeting a few days later where one of them was going to be dismissed, and the rest were feeling like things were just getting very chaotic, and so they say that they left, living in the house, not to stop being novices, but because they didn't, they say feel safe in the house because things were very erratic. So they wrote to their superior general a year ago today and asked him that they would have a new novice master, that this guy would be removed as novice master, and that that they they allege this this these care, these kinds of misconduct, and um, and they didn't hear from him, but he did talk with. Um, some professed members of the community, uh, two brothers and two priests and the guy who they were making accusations against, and then wrote them each a letter two weeks later saying that um, there was no substance to what they had alleged and um, their novitiate was terminated. They were no longer novices. Their novitiate. There was no substance to what they had alleged, that the severe had complete confidence in their novice master and that their novitiate was terminated. They were no longer novices. And um, I started talking with some of those men um, a couple of weeks ago and have talked with five of those six men and have spoken with their community's attorney, who is their sort of spokesman at length. And, um, and, and what this story seems to come to is, this, is, a, is a question of governance about process and procedure and just process and procedure. These men allege a series of, you know, a, a series of um, things which amount to misconduct. Um, you know, there are, uh, I spoke with five of them who all attested to either experiencing these things or witnessing these things um, in various kinds or various ways. And, um, and uh, they manifested that to their superior and um, that's not to say that um, 
you know, that's an, that is that that is a set of allegations. These men made a set of allegations. That's not a conclusive sort of um, you can't close the door on what happened um, subsequent to a set of allegations. But to figure out what happened, um, talking with those who have made the allegations seems to be a, a requirement of, of, of justice, naturally speaking, not a requirement, not only a requirement of just procedure of sort of. Um, procedural justice, but a requirement of, uh, of natural justice, that those who make an accusation, uh, you know, have the opportunity to explain that accusation and to be and, and to be heard in the process of investigating it. But these men who made this, these allegations were not interviewed in any way during the process in which some of their, uh, in which their religious superior and um, some of their confreres were interviewed before the, the Religious Institute decided that um, what they had said was not credible and that they were dismissed from their Religious Institute. And um, the reason why I thought this story was really important to report is because, again, not because I think that we can say, well, their allegations are a substantial demonstration uh, that each of the things they say is true or can be understood exactly the way that they say it, because when you do an investigation, you talk to lots of people who all sort of saw a set of things from their own perspective, and um, you try to piece those perspectives together and see sort of what can be verified and, and what can't. Um, but to say that there is a problem in the process, to raise the question of the problem of, uh, in, the, in this process by which those who make an accusation would not be interviewed and to say, you know, if we are at the place in the sort of legal reform of, um, of addressing um, issues of abuse of office and, or, or allegations of abuse of office or misconduct on the part of a religious superior, those kinds of things, and our procedural justice does not yet require sort of interviewing those who have made allegations, if our procedural norms don't yet require that, there's a real question about whether they are just, and if they do require that, then there's a real question about sort of the degree to which they're being observed based upon this, um, you know, th- this situation in which the religious order confirmed that they didn't interview the men because they said the men didn't ask to be interviewed and therefore it wasn't necessary to interview them about their allegations. Um, whatever might have been found by an investigation, I think we can say that an investigation which was not to interview the six people who are making allegations of misconduct uh, seems to be lacking in some essential character of justice. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, the other thing that struck me in the story was, you know, we we put to the order's lawyer um, some of the specific allegations of what the the former novices considered to be sort of sexual harassment, um, and and said, you know, do you think th- yeah, this touching sort of, of the buttocks and crotch or, and, and know, inner thigh like, and stuff like this? Right. Inner thigh—that's what it was, not crotch. Yeah. Inner thigh, um, right. Does that? Is that something that the order would would recognize if proven to be you know sexual misconduct? And the answer is well, no, um, but also that. But we would yeah we wouldn't consider that to be an allegation of sexual misconduct. Yeah, touching and, the and also there so isn't a sexual misconduct policy. Misconduct that we would, policy. So there's right. no standard by which to measure this against. And that to me seemed like the biggest problem was like I, we you you know there, there seems to be you know, these guys are making um, reports of what they say are sexual harassment or, or otherwise. Um, and they're being told, oh, that doesn't meet the standard of sexual harassment. But there is no standard of sexual harassment to meet. And that yeah. just, you know, and, and again, not, uh, none of this is to say that the allegations are proven or whatever, that there shouldn't be an investigation. But, you know, as you say, as a matter of natural justice, the person making the accusation should be heard. Right. Uh, but also just, you know, to, to not have a policy, to have a policy that wouldn't recognize that sort of behavior as problematic if proven in a in a formation environment, I think – in 2022 in the church is deeply worrying. Like this is exactly the kind of nonsense that Teddy McCarrick would get up to and which everybody saw and reported with internally. The things which the men alleged, like the excessive drinking, the kind of, you don't have anywhere to go but here. The men say that the superior told them often like, you don't have anywhere to go but here, or, you know, you you won't be able to join any other order because you left your dioceses or 
Um, you know, they, some of them had had been seminarians right away. Some of them had been seminarians previously. So you have this history, so you won't get in. You know, you have this back history, so you won't get in. These kind of things. Yeah, those kinds of things are the kinds of things that McCarrick was accused of, that kind of, you know. Right. Um, Which, again, none of this yeah. is to say that that's proven that this is what the novice master actually, actually did. did in this. Right. But the fact that the, the allegations themselves don't trigger a, a radically different engagement process is deeply worrying because the failure to take allegations of this kind seriously in the past is exactly how McCarrick was able to operate in the church, in right. seminaries, in dioceses, right. you know, and rise the, with impunity for decades. Right. So it's, you know, it, it really does feel like, and again, this did, this is not to weigh in on the substance of the allegations, but just right. to say the, the reaction and process here is, you know, gives very much the smell of a church that's learned nothing. And that's well, and I have really a feeling worrying. I've been trying to put myself, you know, we've gotten some answers from the, religious order about this idea that they wouldn't consider this allegation of um, in, of uh, touching the inner thigh and buttocks to be uh, uh, sexual misconduct and these kinds of things. I, I have a, um, I have been just trying to think about like, well, how would, what would the institute, what would be their reasoning that they wouldn't interview these guys at all? Now, the lawyer says, well, they didn't ask for an interview, but I don't know that, the, that that's what the institute was thinking then. I, you know, I, it sounds like from the way that the guys described things, there was an escalating tension in the house. The guys say that the superior made changes to liturgy and to customs practice in the house, the way that they prayed the office, the way the mass was, and that the guy sort of said, well, the novices, he told the other people in the house that the novices are making us do this or the novices are making me do this or whatever. Now, the guy's the superior, so he owns the changes that he makes in the house. Um, you know, but it sounds like there was, a, there was an escalating period of tension in the house in which the men alleged that the, um, that the superior was kind of putting the blame on them for things that they, on him for things that they wanted. It's possible that a group of novices who all knew each other beforehand really did have a set of preferences for the way things were going to go liturgically and in the life of the house and were kind of, you know, it's, it's possible that they really did have an idea of this is how we want things to be. And maybe that was part of what was disruptive in the house. And I, the reason I raise that is because I think it's entirely possible that the order would say, well, these guys were just, there were just a would be thinking something like, why wouldn't they interview them? They would be thinking something like, well, there were just a ton of problems with these guys. We just, it's just better to kind of cut bait. There were just a ton of problems with these guys and be thinking about the solution to the question of these guys, you know, and, or maybe we think these guys are not being truthful or not being straightforward or exaggerating certain things because there have been all these problems. I, I think it's possible whether the problems were the, whether the, you know, the guys say that there was escalating attention in the house, but whether that was their fault or whether that was the superior's fault, you know, who, who's to say of us, right? But, um, but I think it's possible that the, that the order was thinking, well, better to just cut bait with these guys because it's been a bunch of problems and one thing after another. And, you know, the guys are saying it's a novice master, but the novice master is a professed member of the community. So what's the community going to say in a certain way? I, I could see how they might get themselves to saying, so let's just cut bait. But the problem with let's just cut bait is um, whatever the backstory of uh, the escalating tension in the house is, the guys are alleging serious things. And y y to sort of uh, write that off uh, over – well, we uh, there's more to the you know. We, well, th there's a whole backstory where, where there's been this tension with these guys, or you know, we don't think these guys are telling truth, or we think this is a personality problem between them and their novice master. Any of those things which might have been in their mind. Once those serious allegations have been made, I think the whole thrust of the Pope's efforts on a legal reform in the Church has been those serious allegations must be investigated seriously. Um, and all of the things which might be sort of thought by the community, if the, if, the, if the spirits of the community were thinking, well, we think that this is the issue or we think that's the issue, those things should come to the fore in a full-throated investigation. But there's a reason why things like this need to be done according to Hoyle and for posterity and in a documented way. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a reason for that. 
which is that something we've said on the show before, which is that you know justice without a paper trail, um, without you know without the demonstration of justice, without the ability to demonstrate justice, is not justice, because as things stand, um, what the order has said is we didn't investigate the guys because they didn't ask to be investigated. If there's more to it than that, that's the kind of thing that justice demands being fleshed out. And I think it's pretty clear that justice demands that when people make allegations like that, they're interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. So the guys say that they tried to contact the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and the Archdiocese of Los Angeles kind of cooled on them when they realized the guys weren't going to press charges. The Archdiocese says that that's not true, that they had expressed solicitude for the guys, but there hadn't been a conversation about whether they were going to press charges. And so there's a, a discrepancy there. But the Archdiocese does say that they have invited the guys, you know, having received questions from us and, you know, about, about um, the guys' sort of ongoing concerns, as they say, they have invited the guys to contact the vicar for clergy and they will be, you know, inclined to investigate it. So I think we'll, just because this investigation is, I think, illustrative of a lot of, the, everything that has happened thus far is illustrative of sort of the state of the question in certain ways. Um, now, some of it may be, you know, exceptional to the norm, some of it may not be, but there are things that can be learned about the state of the question here in terms of the, the reforms of the past few years. I think we, we'll be following that investigation to sort of find out where it goes. Um, but uh, it does look like there's at least a path forward for investigation of these serious allegations that these men have made. I, I mean, I guess we have to say it every time and you grow tired of saying it. But, I mean, hopefully well, a lesson will be thing, learned. Is I almost didn't want to talk about it on the show today because I think it's important to report. But it's just like how many of these things do you report that – where there, are, where there are serious lacuna of justice or serious sort of impediments to the resolution of justice, whether it's, you know, an apostolic visitation of a bishop that doesn't – or sort of Vosestis visitation of a bishop that sort of doesn't go anywhere with no communication about why after serious allegations have been raised, whether it is the promise of investigation of something that doesn't lead to um, – uh, uh, um, Results of that investigation, whether that is the announcement of results of, uh, of results of a Vosestis investigation without any su substance to demonstrate the, the way in which those results were reached. Um, you know, we are in a period in which the church has said since 2018 we're going to have a very serious legal reform on these things. And um, piling up the evidence sort of uh, on the scale, there is precious little evidence to suggest that the legal reform is what most people have expected it to be or has been implemented in the way that it it's sort of it's uh, it's 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 norms on paper call for, and you know I, I was almost reticent to talk about that because it feels like playing a broken record or beating a beating the same drum or beating a dead horse. That's the phrase I was looking for, and and I really don't want to be like just like um, constantly you know sort of haranguing on. This is not where things this is not where things were said they were going to be. This is not the kind of reform that was talked about in 2018. But this is not the kind of transparent reform that was talked about in 2018. This case or these other cases that we're citing. So there is an ongoing need for Catholics to be attentive and aware of what was um, proposed in terms of a transparent reform and what its real reality and implementation actually is. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And all we can do, I think, is just continue to document, right? Well, I mean, this is the... This is what we said we would do when we set this place up. Was we said we would do the long form stuff. We would look at the stuff that otherwise wouldn't make the news. We would do the public accountability stuff to pay attention to the to the to the implementation yeah. of this thing called a transparent reform. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers. The University of Dallas invites you to check out their free five-episode video series, The Quest, at the link in the show notes or at udallas.edu slash pillar. That's udallas.edu slash pillar. Ed, I hope you're going to have a great weekend. I hope I am too. What are your plans? What are your big plans for the weekend? 
Uh, I have, I've got a lot of stuff I need to get. I finally turned over my flower beds and got my vegetables and things in the. Oh, you're a gardener? Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't go crazy, but I like a well-manicured backyard and I like, I, I don't grow flowers because what's the point? Um, you just said I, you turned over flower beds. Well, yeah, I have flower beds, but I, I turn them over and then I plant them exclusively full of things I can eat. So I have, um, I have things that I have been growing in pots from seed that I now need to get in the ground and get them better established. And, you know, I'm, I've been cultivating, you know, I have, I have the usual chilies and sweet peppers and I have a big strawberry patch and I've, you know, I grow tomatoes every year and I, um, I've got a lemon tree that's finally ready to go in the ground this year that I've been nurturing for a while. So I've, I've got stuff I've got to get in the ground. That's what I'm doing this weekend. Wow. Wow. How about that? Yeah. How about you? Uh, what do I grow? I have, uh, I have a, uh, a seemingly infertile um, raspberry bush. And then I have these little frangolini that grow sort of wildly in my backyard that are yummy. Um, but my son keeps asking when they are going to turn into um, big grown-up strawberries. And, of course, uh, Wait, I, of I course mean, I don't know not. if the Denver climate is prohibitive, but strawberries are really easy to grow. I mean, Well, I have these the, wild frangolini, so I don't need to grow well, you cultivated just, strawberries. You don't have to cultivate. That's my point. Is you could just get a couple of full-size strawberry plants and stick them in the ground and they'll spread like wildfire and your son will have larger strawberries yeah we'll see all right the pillar podcast is a production of pillar media and ngd production i'm your host and pillar editor chief jd flynn i'm joined by my podcasting partner and green thumb extraordinaire ed condon and we'll be back next week 